Stand Up for the Truth is sponsored by Lakeshore Communications Incorporated and made possible by your generous tax-deductible donations at StandUpForTheTruth.com slash donate. This is Stand Up for the Truth, a packed hour of challenging discussion addressing important issues and topics affecting Christians across the nation. Join the conversation via email at comments at StandUpForTheTruth.com. Now, David Fiorazzo. Hello, brothers and sisters in Christ. Thank you for tuning in. Um, hope you had a great weekend, and we've got a big week, a lot of great guests, including today, kicking it off with J.B. Hickson. But I have a few announcements to make. First of all, our uh, Stand Up For The Truth guests have been alphabetized, and they've been placed on our website at StandUpForTheTruth.com, along with a link to each one of their names, to their most recent podcast, so it makes it really easy for you so uh, to, to listen to some great guests. I learn so much here on this podcast. I'm, I'm blessed to be able to learn from the best. Also, our friends at Red Pill Prince contacted us, and they added that long-awaited, uh, really sharp-looking, uh, black stand-up-for-the-truth coffee mug. It is a brand-new item at redpillprints.com. It's got John 14, 6 on it, little little cross logo, and it says Stand Up For The Truth. You can see that by going to standupforthetruth.com, upper right hand. It's one word. It says merch. Click on that. It'll take you right over to the Red Pill Prints page. I'm serious. We're going to put a picture of this in today's podcast uh, notes on the blog. It looks really sharp. i got to get one. So the other thing is we are less than three weeks away from the 2020 uh, Fall Great Lakes Prophecy Conference in Appleton, Wisconsin, and I've been blessed to be able to speak there. I'll be kicking off Saturday, September 10. And uh, Curtis Bowers is speaking. Jeremy Higgins, Chris Quintana, Andy Woods, Jeff Solwald, and others. You can look that up. We're posting that on Facebook. We'll get you more information as it gets closer. So that Saturday is going to be a great day. I'm looking forward to that. So it's a blessing. Um, got a very important topic today. We've been really talking a little bit about the inerrancy of scriptures and how important it is not to abandon that. Uh, and a lot of people have, and it's gone on for quite some time in the evangelical church and Protestant churches in America. We're going to look into some history today and uh, with J.B. Hicks, and we're going to get a little overview of how this all happened, how we got here and uh, let's just bring him on right now. Of course, he's an author and pastor, Plum Creek Chapel near Denver, Colorado. Sedalia, for those of you in that neck of the woods. JB's the founder of Not By Works Ministries. And his latest book is called Spirit of the Antichrist, The Gathering Cloud of Deception. It is part one. Part two is coming out in a few months. JB, welcome back to the podcast and good morning. Hey, good morning, David. Great to be great to be with you again. Yeah, we're. I'm excited to talk about this today. This is. I've been really researching the descent of the modernists, and I've been looking at what happens when we take that first step of doubting the perfection of Scripture and and, and falling for the deception that the Bible is not infallible. So I sent you a graphic a couple of weeks ago, I think of these men walking down these stairs, and all these stairs are labeled with something. It starts off with Christianity at the very top, and the next step down is Bible, not infallible, and the next step is man not made in God's image, the next step, evolution, and then it goes down. So let's talk about this. I think you wanted to provide a little bit of historical context um, and give people a little bit of uh, background before we jump into the specifics, correct? Yeah, you bet. Uh, so what's what's so interesting about this topic that you, you asked us to talk about today is in Volume 2 of the, the forthcoming book, Spirit of the Antichrist, we have a chapter on spiritual apostasy and uh, just the decline of the church and really the, the coming one-world religion. So uh, if you think big picture in this cosmic struggle between God and Satan, you know, he has to destroy, or at least attempt to destroy, he can never destroy the, God's church, the gates of hell will not prevail against it, but in order to usher in this one-world political, religious, and economic system, he's got to, you know, to do a full-on assault to the church, and, you know, Scripture quite plainly tells us in Second Timothy 4.3 that the time will come when people will not endure sound doctrine, 
but instead, uh, according to their own desires and because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers and turn their ears away from the truth, being turned aside uh, to fables. And so, in many ways, what we see happening in American evangelicalism is a, a fulfillment of prophecy. It's, it was predicted in Scripture, but it doesn't mean that we as uh, true believers shouldn't stand firm against it and, and always uh, seek to uphold the authority of Scripture as the only standard for our beliefs, attitudes, and practices. Well, let's start with a few scriptures before we move on, J.B., including uh, what the Bible says. Of course, read Psalm 119, and we'll find uh, what God believes about his perfect word and the righteousness of the word and the, the perfection, the truth. Um, Luke 21:33, heaven and earth will pass away, Jesus said, but my words will not pass away. Psalm 119, 160 says, the sum of your word is truth, and every one of your righteous judgments is everlasting. Isaiah 40, verse 8 says, the grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. And of course, John 1, 1 and 2, part of that says Jesus was in the beginning with God. So he took part in creation. It says all things came into being through him. So we understand, JB, and I'll let you elaborate on this, that an attack on the truth of God's word is an attack on the person of Jesus himself, correct? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, we've got the living incarnate word, Jesus Christ, God's Son, our Savior, and then we've got the living written word. And, uh, you know, to deny one is to deny the other. But to really understand kind of how we got to where we are, we, we need to look at, I think, the big picture of human history, understanding uh, that according to the Bible, we, we've, we've had about 6,000 years of human history, I believe, in a young earth, just the way the Bible describes it in Genesis. Um, and uh, so the, the Darwinian approach to millions and millions of years and the fact, you know, the, the theory that we all evolved from a wet rock just is simply not biblical. But uh, obviously depravity is a degenerative disease. Once we fell in the garden, it started getting worse and worse. Uh, Paul tells us in 2 Timothy 3.13 that evil men and imposters will grow worse and worse. So uh, we, we typically break up uh, human history into three broad uh, categories, uh, and, and historians call these the pre-modern era, the modern era, and the post-modern era. And, of course, it's not like there's some hard line of delineation between the three where, you know, you saw it written in the, in the sky or something. But generally speaking, we can kind of survey human history and, and pinpoint roughly uh, the time frame of, of, of those three eras. So most uh, historians would say that, you know, the pre-modern era basically was everything up until, um, you know, the, basically the storming of the Bastille, 1789, the Renaissance, the, you know, the, the Enlightenment, that, that time period. And from that point on, we shifted into what we call the modern era, and where the pre-modern era was characterized by faith and by a high view of the Bible and an understanding that there is a God, even if people didn't believe in the gospel, they hadn't trusted Christ and him alone for salvation, they still understood through providence and nature that there is a God and a creator. They understood in the pre-modern era that their, their senses were incomplete, that there was something more than what you could see and feel and touch. But once we entered the modern era, uh, so this would be late 18th century, 19th century, most of the 20th century, uh, instead of faith, everything shifted to, to reason and to the scientific view of things, uh, that, that, that there, there was a low view of Bible. If you couldn't see it, feel it, and touch it, it didn't exist. And, you know, they scoffed and mocked the Bible, and uh, it was all about natural explan explanations. And so the way this manifested in the church, and, and at this point we're talking sort of the global church, and we'll shift into evangelicalism in America sure. as we move forward. Mm -hmm. but, uh, globally speaking, uh, what happened was the church began to reject the miracles of Christ. They began to reject the plain teaching of God's Word. Um, Darwin, of course, was out there in the 1800s promoting, you know, old earth and uh, eugenics mm -hmm. and uh, yes. degrading uh, the image of God in man. And so they, you know, began to, the church began to take its cue from the world and it began to suggest that uh, the Bible is simply wrong when it comes to those things, that the earth isn't 6,000 roughly years old, uh, it's millions of years old, and there wasn't uh, a great flood uh, over the whole earth, it was just uh, a, a regional flood, and it wasn't 
the parting of the Red Sea. It was just low tide, and you know, Jonah <laughs> was not swallowed by a great fish. That was just some allegory, you know. Yes. So, and it just became it got worse and worse to the point where they denied the deity of Christ, denied the virgin birth, denied ultimately the atoning sacrifice of Christ and the resurrection. So, uh, that was the modern era. And but most historians uh, kind of understand that that sort of uh, died out in, in roughly. Uh, in my notes, I have 1989. That's what I've uh, in my chart book. That's what I suggest the Not By Works chart book. Uh, you know, so basically, with the onset of the internet and the rapid dissemination of information, it became uh, we, we shifted into the postmodern era. So what's interesting, if you're kind of paying attention to those dates, is the pre-modern era lasted millennia. The modern era only lasted 200 centuries, and now we're in the post-modern mm. era, and it's you know less than uh, you know 60 years or so already, uh, 50 years, and it seems like things are rapidly uh, spiraling out of control. But in the post-modern era, they didn't care about faith. They don't care because we're still really in it. Although some people call it post-Christian and post-truth, and all those things are true, but just keeping with the broad pre-modern, modern, postmodern, you know, perspective, in the postmodern era, people don't care about faith or reason. They just there's no explanations. They don't really care. Anyone's truth is good for them. They're not yep. there's no absolute truth. Um, they have a, a self serving view of the Bible. You know, whereas the modernists hated the Bible, the pre modernists respected the Bible, the postmodernists just don't care. They you know, if you if the Bible's your book great good for you but uh, don't try to claim that it is true for everybody uh, so you know it really is within this uh, shift from the modern into the postmodern era that we saw uh, the the rise of you know liberalism in the church mm-hmm. yes uh, in America so yes I call it the cult of liberalism and for, yeah. for various reasons but I want to go back to something you said because I just preached uh, part of this yesterday you, you mentioned Jonah um, a lot of people, skeptics or scoffers or people that would put down the Bible saying that it's a book just written by men, and then they say, could, could really, could a guy named Jonah have been swallowed by a big fish and then really repent and get spit out and come back as a preacher of righteousness, and then people in Nineveh get saved? Um, so let's look at Matthew twelve forty and 41, because Jesus mentioned Jonah three times in two verses. So either Jonah is true history, an actual account of a man and a people in Nineveh, or Jesus is a liar, and a good teacher can't be a liar. A lot of people just think Jesus is a good teacher. I would just love to get your thoughts on that, JB, because Jesus specifically says, as Jonah was in the stomach of the great fish for three days and three nights, so will the Son of Man be in the heart of the earth for three days and three nights. And then he goes on, but he mentions Jonah three times times affirming the historicity of the bible yeah absolutely and jesus also mentions daniel by name uh affirming the historicity of daniel and liberal Mm -hmm. uh, critics today of of god's word uh, deny daniel because it was so remarkably accurate in its prophecies that you know he couldn't possibly be you know written before all these things they, they say so the bottom line is uh you know, in the modern era, the fight was over the accuracy and, and infallibility and authority of the Bible versus science and reason. But that argument really is almost irrelevant today because people just absolutely have disregarded the Bible. They're not fighting over the Bible. They they don't even know what the Bible is in many cases. They just. Uh, mm-hmm. I remember talking to a lady not long ago at a conference uh, who you know about the words of Christ, and she was saying that a person gets to heaven by just, you know, being nice and kind, and I started quoting Jesus, and she she denied it, and I said, so you don't believe the Bible? And I said, well, you believe, she, she said, well, I believe parts of it, and I said, well, you know, the things I was just quoting are ex- direct quotes of Jesus, and she said, well, how do we know that? You know, the Bible was just written by humans, but oh, boy. the fact of the matter is, the Bible wow, the most remarkable book in the history of the world. It's in a class by itself, because... It is quick and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to dividing asunder of soul and spirit, like joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. One of my mentors and professors, Howard Hendricks, used to say, when you read the Bible, it's doing something to you. (laughs) You read any other book on the planet, you're doing something to it, but not the Bible, because it's alive. And it really is, just on its face, 
remarkable, the continuity of the Bible. I mean, yes. think about it, David. The Bible was written over a period of 1,500 years by 40 different human authors on three different continents <laughs> in three different languages. Yes, yes. And yet, from Genesis to Revelation, the continuity is astounding. And remember, this was well before you had digital technology, email, even regular mail, even paper or the printing press. So it's not like people could, you know, go to their local library, pull out a copy of Genesis, and then write about it a thousand years later in, in their own words and their own language. So clearly, the continuity of Scripture proves that, uh, you know, that, that, that it has a divine author, a capital A author. Um, and, you know, the Bible 3,800 times says, thus saith the Lord. So, uh, you know, it, it really is critical that we, that we stand firm on the inerrancy of Scripture. And, and what do we mean by inerrancy? Inerrancy just means that when the quill hit the sheepskin, so to speak, when God, through the Holy Spirit, inspired these 40 human authors to write his self-revelation to mankind, when mm -hmm. that happened, the moment the, the pen hit the paper, so to speak, those words are completely and totally accurate without error, period. Now, through the years, as we've made different translations, and of course, uh, certainly as we've written commentaries about the Bible, mankind is not infallible. So right. we've we've made mistakes here and there, and I, you know, I'm sure you'll admit, I admit that sometimes my interpretations are off, and that's why we study the Bible as a lifelong pursuit. These you know, coming back to the Word of God again and again and, and, and connecting the dots and doing our best to study it in its literal, grammatical, historical framework. But, but the actual Scripture itself, the, the autographs, we call that, the original documents, are 100% without error, and they're the only thing that we can kind of stake our claim on. Amen, brother. We're talking about the inerrancy of Scriptures and how following from that, apostasy, uh, falling away and, and not believing that any longer has affected the modern church. And our guest is J.B. Hickson, and you can get info on J.B. at notbyworks.org. Um, we're going to have to, you know, we only have three minutes left in this segment, but I think I'd like to refute what that woman said to you, because uh, a lot of people believe and they don't understand, uh, the, yes, the Bible was written by men. But they're putting God in a box by suggesting that the creator of the heavens and the earth and all things and humankind could not speak his message <laughs> through people he created. So it's just astounding to me that people have that little faith. But this is the prevailing thought out there, JB. Um, and I want to, when we come back from our break, I want to go to Second Peter chapter one. But would, would you t talk a little bit about this? Because people, you hear that all the time. Oh, the Bible has been written by, it was written by men. How can it be perfect? And then there's so many mistakes and then copies. Share a little bit in the next two minutes before we take a break. Yeah, it was, I was actually turning to Second Peter 1 as you were, as you were talking. Ah. <laughs> Scripture clearly tells us that holy men of God spoke as they were moved or carried along by the Holy Spirit. And, you know, Paul in Second Timothy 3.16 reminds us that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God, literally God breathed, and uh, scripture there is the word graphe, it means writings, uh, and that is the same uh, word in Greek where we get our English word graffiti, so it's writings, in other words, it's not the ideas or concepts of scripture that are inspired, but the actual words mm. on the page, and and so uh, clearly this is uh, the word of God, it's infallible, we can, Proverbs says we can know the certainty of the words of truth yes. through God's mm. word. So, yeah, I'd love, uh, after the break, I want to get into kind of how, uh, in the 20th century, 1900s, how the church in America uh, really kind of lost its moorings when it comes to the authority of Scripture. Mm -hmm. Yes. Um, Jesus said that when David, for example, wrote Scripture, he was speaking by the Spirit. The Holy Spirit was speaking through him. Peter, when he wrote first and second, Peter, obviously, he was moved by the Holy Spirit. He was, the word was spoke from God. Men moved by the Holy Spirit, carried along by the Holy Spirit. And um, he affirmed over and over, by the way, that he believed scriptures to be the very word of God, inspired, authoritative. We're going to talk a little bit more about this with J.B. Hickson. And then ask the question, how did we get to today? Where, for example, outside the church in 2016, the Oxford English Dictionary Word of the Year was post-truth. We'll talk about that and a lot more when we come back on Stand Up For The Truth.
Your monthly financial support of StandUpForTheTruth.com is needed and appreciated. Now, back to today's Stand Up For The Truth with David Fiorazzo. Our guest, J.B. Hickson, today, we're talking about the importance of Christians standing on the infallible and eternal truth of God's Word and understanding it is authoritative, it is inerrant. And anybody that says it's not, um, that, that's a deceiver. So, J.B., post-truth, we talked about that right before the break. Uh, according to the Oxford English Dictionary, they define post-truth, the word of the year, five years ago, four years ago, as, quote, relating to or denoting circumstances in which objective facts or truth, are less influential in shaping public opinion than appeals to emotion and personal belief, end quote. So I want you to elaborate, but what I get out of that is truth is cast aside, and now what really people you know base their foundation on is emotion. If something makes you feel good or something is encouraging to you that personally you believe it can be true, then that takes place over the actual truth, because those are the things that are shaping public opinion. J.B. Hickson, your thoughts? Yeah, that's the hallmark of postmodern thinking today, or post-Christian thinking, or post-truth, and that is that there's no one absolute truth, capital T, that is true for all people at all times, that truth is a, a, a personal uh, per paradigm, a personal bias. and mm. But, you know, what does the Bible say? Again, we I believe the Bible is the Word of God. I'm sorry, but that's that's my standard. It's my only hope. It's the lamp to my feet, a light to the path, and to my path. And Jesus clearly said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And he said, uh, you shall know the truth, and the truth shall, shall set you free. So contrary to popular opinion, truth is not elusive. It is, it is absolute, and it is uh, knowable. But, you know, I like to... Uh, to cast this whole discussion of, of truth uh, and the and the assault on truth within the broader context of God's plan of the ages, because you know those who've been listening and following, uh, listening to my teaching and following not by works know that I'm passionate about the end times, and mm-hmm. our book Spirit of the Antichrist is all about kind of this ultimate battle that's coming to fruition here uh, with the Satan's one world system. But you know Satan is going to ultimately have one tyrannical human leader that he indwells to try to take over the world. And the Bible calls that man the Antichrist. Well, what does Antichrist mean? It means both against Christ and also uh, a false Christ or a substitute Christ. And the future Antichrist is both. And John tells us the spirit of that Antichrist is already at work among us, and that's the whole premise for my book, Spirit of the Antichrist. And what that means is that if the if the Antichrist is is a false Christ and coming against Christ, he's coming against truth, <laughs> because Jesus is the truth. And so, of course, the closer we get to the return of Christ and the rapture, then we're going to see more and more assaults uh, on truth. So to me, this whole postmodern uh, influence on evangelicalism is just yet another sign of the times that uh, we're getting closer and closer to the end. Amen, brother. And and it is. And let's go back and, and talk about how Peter warned um, uh, his followers that mockers will come. He said mm-hmm. scoffers and mockers will come, false teachers. He said, in fact, Second uh, Peter um, chapter um, 2, first couple verses, he said that. He said, but false prophets also appeared among the people, just as there will also be false teachers among you. So let's talk about how people slip in unnoticed, so to speak. Some, <laughs> a little bit more obvious, but they've crept in, as Jude says. And going back to that chapter, or that uh, verse that we talked about in the first chapter of Second Peter, um, let's go talk about, he also said, we did not follow cleverly devised tales. You hear some people saying, oh, the, that Bible is just, there's, it's a book full of fables. They might talk about Noah or Jonah or other you know, miracles or things like that. Oh, they're fables. And Peter actually uses that word, tales. In the King James, New King James, it's fables. Yeah. So we did not talk about that. When we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, we were I." witnesses. I talked yesterday in the message I gave at church about the eyewitness testimony, how important that is, that in 1 Corinthians 15, up to 500 eyewitnesses saw the resurrected Christ at the same time. And then it goes on, but I'll let you share a little bit more, because Peter says, we have 
the prophetic word made more sure. So, J.B., talk a little bit about that section of Scripture. Yeah, so that, that word fables is actually used five times in the New Testament. Uh, Peter uses it, as you said, there in Second Peter 1. But we've already quoted uh, first, uh, 2 Timothy 4, 4, where it says people will be turned aside to mm. fables. But what's interesting is the original Greek word there is muthos, where we get the English word myth. Yep. And uh, so he, they're talking about myths, things that are made up, man-made, and have no ultimate eternal truth associated with them uh, at all. Mm. And so certainly, uh, as you know, Paul said in 1 Timothy chapter 4, the Spirit expressly says that in the latter times, some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons. And that's really, mm. you know, all that this is. But, you know, I want to go back to, uh, you know, how the Church got to where we are today, at least in America. And, you know, we've talked about evangelicalism. Mm -hmm. Well, if you go back to the first half of the 20th century, say the 20s, 30s, and 40s, that's when the rise of, of higher criticism and liberalism in the academy uh, the seminaries and Bible colleges began to have an influence that was trickling down to the churches. And my uh, grandfather was a uh, Bible Presbyterian preacher, and uh, I used to love uh, spending time talking with him. He's one of the reasons that I have such a passion for eschatology. Um, but when he passed away in 1985, I received his library and all of his notes, and I discovered that... Uh, we had a lot in common in terms of our passion for the Grand Luciferian Conspiracy. But another thing I discovered is that he was right in the thick of the so-called modernist fundamentalist controversies mm. of the 40s. In fact, that's one of the reasons that he really went into ministry, is he could see the church slipping away. He went into ministry late in life in his 40s, uh, when my dad was in high school. And, um, and, and so a lot of the materials that, that he had in his library were things uh, just really bemoaning the state of the church and the attacks on inerrancy. In fact, it was in that time frame that the whole concept of inerrancy came up. It used to be enough just to say the Bible was infallible, yeah. but then it, you know, people started redefining what that means, and so they had to come up with this concept of inerrancy, which is certainly true, but you had the, the biblical council on uh, inerrancy and other groups that made statements strongly affirming uh, that the Bible is without error. And so, you know, this is something that has that I feel like a personal connection to is sort of understanding, you know, how we uh, came from, you know, from a church that historically understood the place of God's Word in life and in practice to a church in America that has largely abandoned the Bible. And, uh, you know, the, the modernists, uh, you know, were trying to take over all of the churches, and so that's why it was around the 40s that you started seeing this proliferation of spin-off denominations. You know, there's some 25 or 28, last time I checked, Baptist denominations, wow. because, you know, every time they went liberal in a certain area, <laughs> a, a small remnant, a, a group of conservatives that held firm to the Word of God, split off. Um, I mentioned yesterday in our church, Plum Creek Chapel in Sedalia, how the Berean Fellowship uh, celebrated its 90th anniversary yesterday. It was August 21st, 1932, uh, and it's a small denomination of some 60, or I'm sorry, it's not a denomination, it's a fellowship of, of loosely associated churches, but it, it's about 60 or so churches, but it was originally the Berean Fundamental Churches, uh, and in the 1930s it was they saw the need to to reaffirm the authority of God's word, and so they started this fellowship. and And today, it's you know every church within that fellowship, even though each church is autonomous and uh, not beholden to any denominational leadership, they all have the same thing in common, and that is a stand for the authority uh, of God's word. Amen. So, you know, we've seen this uh, shift, and as we, uh, if time permits, as we go forward, I want to kind of talk a little bit more about the, the, the 1900s and kind of what developed through that time period. That's exactly what I'd like to go to next. A, a little bit earlier than what you were just saying, uh, there was actually a little split. There was a debate. One of the doctrines that was debated was the virgin birth of Jesus Christ. And that's what necessitated the doctrinal deliverance of 1910. And this was in the Presbyterian Church, um, which by 1930 they actually dropped the resolution supporting the five fundamental doctrines um, that were put out in 1910, which is sad, and we don't need to go. We could, 
But I just want to mention two men that were battling back and forth. Shots were fired, JB, across the bow. And uh, a, a liberal named Harry Fosdick was a spokesman for liberalism. And he was one of the catalysts at that time in the early 1900s of watering down the truth and inspiration of God's word. And he preached a sermon called, Shall the Fundamentalists Win? So you had on one side the fundamentalists, you had on the other side, uh, you had the liberalists or the modernists. And Clarence McCartney came back and refuted him. He was a conservative pastor from Philadelphia who defended the truth. And he published a pamphlet, which was his sermon called, Shall Unbelief Win? And I just want to quote Clarence McCartney and let you take it from there. Um, he talked about the menace of the rationalistic and modernistic movement in Protestant Christianity and said, quote, the movement is slowly secularizing the church. Now, this was 100 years ago, guys, exactly 100 years ago. He said the movement is slowly secularizing the church and if permitted to go unchecked and unchallenged, will ere long produce in our churches a new kind of Christianity a Christianity without worship, without God, and without Jesus Christ, end quote. So J.B. sounds like a different gospel, another gospel, a new kind of Christianity, and secularizing the church is exactly what happened. Yeah, it was, that was a very prescient statement, and, uh, and uh, of course God's Word tells us this is, uh, this is going to happen. But, you know, what's interesting that the labels uh, tell us a lot, mm -hmm. fundamentalism versus modernism, yes. again, back in the early 20s and so forth. Mm -hmm. Well, what, what did the fundamentalists teach? Well, they taught that there are fundamental truths, foundational truths that are non-negotiable, uh, one of which is the deity of Christ and the virgin birth and uh, things like the authority and inerrancy of Scripture. The modernists, on the other hand, as a result of sort of the Darwinian uh, heresy uh, and the eugenics movement, thought that we're getting better and better. See, remember, that's the fundamental error in, in Darwinism, yep. that mankind is getting better and better and better, and that the modernists thought we're now enlightened enough and smart enough to figure out that that's, those silly old myths of the Bible are not true, uh, and, and, and now those of us that are the initiated, the wise ones, we get that, you know, there is no truth and that Jesus really didn't die on the cross for your sins and those kinds of things. So modern has a negative connotation there, at least yeah. from the perspective of those who believe the Bible. And by the way, that's one of the reasons that I really uh, are, am not in favor of the little children's Bible storybooks, because exactly. so many of them kind of tell the stories of Scripture as if they're just that, stories, like a Mother Goose you know, book or something. And it subtly undermines the authority of, of Scripture. So that's why when I, when I refer to the certain events uh, uh, and historical narratives within Scripture, I, don't, I try not to, to call them stories. I call them historical accounts, <laughs> because that's what they are. Um, but, you know, what happened was, you know, if you, if you want to think of it this way, evangelicalism really arose as a, as a movement in, you know, Christianity, and think, you know, Billy Graham and some of the mainstream quote-unquote evangelicals even in our day. It arose as a response to the fundamentalism of the 20s and 30s. And so evangelicalism really came in, along in the, in the 40s, and it was this, you know, desire to sort of soften, if you will, uh, Christianity and make it less, um, you know, divisive, in their words. Uh, in other words, evangelicalism came along trying to draw circles of inclusion rather than the lines of distinction that fundamentalists drew. And yes. so what we see, even though evangelicalism can be used in a positive way, it really was just a rebranding of modernism. And I can remember my grandfather, uh, Reverend L.O. Hickson, railing against evangelicals. And, uh, you, know, uh, uh, you know, when my family joined a Southern Baptist church when I was in junior high school, uh, my grandfather wrote a scathing letter to my parents saying, how could you possibly, you know, fellowship with those evangelical heretics, you know? <laughs> of course, as time now has shown, perhaps he was prophetic in his uh, in his thoughts there about the Southern Baptist Church. But nevertheless, that's 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 the history mm -hmm. of, of evangelicalism. And yes. so, you know, if you if you can picture in your mind's eye, David, a sort of a straight line with arrows on either end, in other words, a continuum, 
on the one end, you've got conservatism, theologically speaking, and on the other, liberalism, theologically speaking. And by the way, I know you talk a lot about those labels in a political sense, but in, in a theological sense, conservative just means you uphold the inerrancy of Scripture, the deity of Christ, the virgin birth, the, the necessity of a born-again experience for salvation. Liberalism denies all that, theologically. Yes. So a person can be a conservative person politically, but liberal in their theology. But if you think about that continuum, what what has happened over the years is it, it started out in evangelicalism with you know the gospel sort of losing its importance or its relevance, and it became more about a social gospel and changing the world. And eventually, now we, we've come after a hundred years to the place where the entire gospel message has been obliterated. Yeah. I mean, Today, you'll be banned from YouTube if you stand up and say that anyone who does not place their faith in Jesus Christ and Him alone as the only hope of salvation will spend eternity in a literal place of torment called hell. <laughs> Boy, I mean, even just saying it <laughs> makes me you know, think, wow, you just don't hear that that often. People don't talk about the reality of sin and its punishment and the need for redemption through Christ. And well, so um, everything—we're we, reaping today the consequences— of softening our view and understanding of of the Bible, and to soften the Bible is to soften the gospel. But JB, that's you're not being tolerant. You're you're not being inclusive, and you're not being welcoming, and you're not being accommodating. And <laughs> I'm I'm joking. <laughs> well, t- what I say is take it up with Jesus. Yes, they, exactly. Those are my words. Yes, uh, we've Jesus, got a minute. Don't fear him who can destroy the body. Fear him who can destroy the body and soul in hell. Yep. You know. So we've, we've created God in the image of man is what we've done. And we've we've created a softer, kinder, gentler God, and people just need to understand that God is a God of justice. And he's also a God of grace and mercy and love, which is why he sent his only son Jesus Christ to pay your penalty for sin. And he doesn't want anyone. He's not willing that any should perish. He wants all men to be saved. Amen. Uh, and if anyone spends eternity in hell, they have no one to blame but themselves because God has freely offered the gift of forgiveness and eternal life universally to anyone, whosoever will may come. Amen. So, JB, we'll talk about, uh, I've got a quote from Francis Schaefer. We come back. Also, whatever happened to the apostate emergent church? More with JB Hickson in just a minute. Thank you for listening and sharing today's show via StandUpForTheTruth.com slash podcast. Now, back to Stand Up For The Truth. Here's David Fiorazzo. So Dr. Francis Schaeffer uh, wrote a book called The God Who Is There, and he's talking about what happens when people stop believing in the inerrancy of Scripture, and he talks about the danger of compromise. And this is what we're seeing today in our modern churches. He said this, and this, this is probably in the 1980s, quote, Here is the great evangelical disaster, the failure of the evangelical world to stand for truth. There is only one word for this, namely accommodation. The evangelical church has accommodated the spirit of this age. First, there has been accommodation of Scripture, so that many who call themselves evangelicals hold a weakened view of the Bible and no longer affirm the truth of all that it teaches. Truth not only in religious matters, but in matters of science, history, and morality. End quote. Uh, J.B. Hickson, he says a lot there, but I think the very last sentence when he talks about uh, matters of science and history and morality, we're seeing that evil being called good today. And science, you have to use air quotes when you mention that now, particularly when it comes to gender. And so your thoughts on um, his take of it's just what we've been talking about, accommodation and compromise. Yeah. So, again, the uh, the liberal uh, church uh likes to draw circles of inclusion. Uh, there are no absolutes. There are no lines of, of, or, of distinction. There are no standards. Um, and, um, and, you know, this is what we, that w- what we see really with the emergent church. Mm-hmm. And I've had the opportunity to share the platform with some of those guys because in our ministry we've, the Lord's opened a lot of doors, and, <laughs> and as long as I can preach the clear, accurate, and urgent gospel message, I'll pretty much go Anywhere, and I can remember sitting in the green room and talking to some of these guys, and and just being uh, astounded at mm-hmm. some of the things that they're saying. But you know, in the in the liberal church, the emergent church, there is no bad news, right? 
they don't want to tell people that they're a sinner in need of a savior. It's the it's the you know uh, secular humanistic psychology of I'm okay, you're okay, um, and and they also, as we've been saying, really have this complete uh, disdain, if you will, for doctrine. Uh, I wrote an article some time ago that Harbinger's published on the death of doctrine, but mm-hmm. you know I can remember Brian McLaren saying at the heart of the theological project in the late modern world was the assumption that one could and should reduce revealed truth to propositions and organize those propositions into an outline. In other words, doctrinal statements. Well, guess what? They don't like doctrinal statements. You go to most churches today, and you've got, you know, you'll never find a doctrinal statement or a belief statement on their website. And if you do, it's something real simple, like we believe in God and love, or, you know, something that... That Benign. But yeah. they believe that doctrine is divisive. You know, we don't need this divisive stuff. Uh, notice uh, one of the things Leonard Sweet said, um, and I think I quote this in my book, Getting the Gospel Wrong. He said, right belief should not hold the upper hand over a believer's authentic experience. I just let that sink in. In other words, experience trumps yeah. right belief. That's today. That's that's it. That's exactly times. what you know what it is today. It's about how do I feel, not what is truth. And mm-hmm. um, of course, truth's been under attack since the first century. Pilate asked Jesus, "What is truth?" But what we see is an uptick in this you know post-Christian, post-truth world. And I believe that's a sign of the times because if the Antichrist in the future tribulation is going to get the entire world to come together under one religion. He's going to have to do what? Draw circles of inclusion. And he's going to have to reject, as Daniel says he will, the gods of his fathers, and instead create a new religion, a pluralistic religion, that says, come one, come all. You're all right. <laughs> and, uh, you know, but you can't all be right. Two uh, opposing truths cannot both be true at the same time. So you can't. You can't get to paradise by keeping the five pillars of the faith in Islam and get to heaven by trusting in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who died and rose again for your sins. Those two propositions are diabolically uh, opposed. So, you know, the emergent movement, and you're right, it's not died out. It's, it, it's evolved. It changes names. It's kind of taken different pictures. But most churches today, even if they don't, even, even if they don't know the term emergent, uh, and by the way, that comes from this concept of an emerging, evolving, you know, so, so-called improving uh, theology. We're getting smarter and better, and we're yep. not like those old, you know, fuddy-duddies from the 20th century who thought they should write theology books. We're, yes. we're writing books like the Gospel According to Starbucks, you know, like Leonard Sweet wrote. So, um, but it's still out there, and it's it's manifesting itself in churches that, don't preach the Word of God uh, verse by verse. So would it be fair to say that they see it, uh, the gospel, or let's just say the Word of God, almost as fluid? They can change with the times? Because I'm looking at a quote from former coordinator of the Emergent Village, Tony Jones, that said, this is about our belief that theology changes. The message of the gospel changes. It's not just the method that changes. And I'm going, wow, Jesus yeah. never changed the message to fit the times. But are you seeing the parallels, David, between, and I know you do, between the attacks on the Bible and the attacks on the Constitution? Yes, exactly. Just as liberals in the political realm think the Constitution is a living, breathing text. Remember Al Gore's famous statement in the debate with George W. uh, (laughs) Liberals theologically think the Bible is a living, breathing document that can change. That's why today they say the Bible supports homosexuality. Uh, you know, the United Methodist Church has put out a document claiming, and it's completely and utterly false, but claiming that all the references to homosexuality in Scripture are actually references to pe- pedophilia, and that, you know, consensual homosexual activity is perfectly fine in God's eyes. Yep. And they're just literally making stuff up. I mean, it's patently, provably false that the, the lexical meaning of, you know, homosexual that's used in both the Greek and the Hebrew means male with male, you know? So it has nothing to do with children. So, you know, they're, they, the Bible, they, they say, is changing its, its meaning. And, of course, you know, the Bible itself says uh, that, uh, you know, that God's judgments are absolutely right. Every word of God is pure, Proverbs 30, verse 5, and we can know the certainty 
of the words of truth. So we talked a little bit about Jonah earlier and that Jesus affirmed the historical person of Jonah and what happened to the people of Nineveh that they repented. And Jesus mentioned Jonah three times in two verses. But these men that have crept in not anymore unnoticed because they've been noticed uh, for being the heretics that they are, they would not agree with that, the story of Jonah. And so they would say that wasn't literal. They would call it something else. So we've got a problem here. When men started influencing people away from God's word, it all comes back to, as we've talked about so many times, Genesis 3, did God really say or really mean that? Right, J.B.? Exactly. It all... It all goes back to that, and I, I talk about that in Chapter 11 of Spirit of the Antichrist, uh, Satan's M.O. But you know, here's another a couple of uh, quotes by Leonard Sweet, and you know he's a leading emergent church guy and very articulate, and I think he, he, he says perfectly what they really teach, and there can be no doubt. He says, for example, you need to get rid of your inductive-deductive outlines and points in your sermons and make your sermons pointless. He says. What? He says proposition because again, you know, they're all about the the, the more vague uh, and, and the more the more certainty is absent, the better they think uh, that is. In fact, he he says when a body holds together its various parts in conversation and harmony, when opposites become not a battleground but a playground, that is what truth really is. Mm. So propositional truth, which what the Bible teaches, he says, that's just a matter of polemics best reserved for divinity schools and churches. But when you attack truth, remember, you're attacking the gospel. Multiple times, the Bible connects truth with the gospel. For example, Colossians 1.5, Paul says, because of the hope which is laid up for you in heaven, of which you heard before in the word of the truth of the gospel, or Ephesians 1.13, in him you also trusted after you heard the word of the truth, the gospel of your salvation. So uh, Satan's, you know, 2 Corinthians 4.4 4 says Satan is blinding men's hearts to the gospel, and he's got his crosshairs set squarely mm. on the gospel today, and the way he's doing that is by abolishing truth or attempting to abolish truth. Yes, and um, they've made a lot of headway when it comes to deceiving and taking a lot of people with them. Um, in the modern American church, evangelical church. So we are to raise awareness. We're trying to you know, speak to you guys and just encourage you to make sure your foundation is solid on the Word of God. Uh, it, it is perfect, and there's an answer for every situation of life in God's Word in some way um, or fashion. Um, JB, we've got just five minutes left. So I, I would love to encourage people and, and give them a little bit of push to make sure that they are that their foundation is solid and that they are able to refute some of these attacks on the inerrancy of scriptures and some of these lies of the enemy. Yeah, so I mean, clearly the Bible has a lot to say about the doctrine of separation from false doctrine. Romans 16, Paul tells us to mark those mm-hmm. who are teaching false doctrine and avoid them. Yeah. Um, not by works we have a whole uh, article or document that we put together on the biblical doctrine of separation. And unfortunately, like you said, people today think that's unloving or unkind. Um, But the most loving thing a person can do is to stand firm for the tortoise, to abandon truth for the sake of convenience or feelings or emotions. And so, uh, so yeah, I, I would say, you know, as we get closer and closer to the return of Christ, we're going to see more and more attacks on truth. And, and again, you, you see the manifestations of it on so many levels. Just think about the election. You know, mm-hmm. what people actually voted for is irrelevant. What's only relevant is what we tell you. So they, they have selections, not elections. They just proclaim, you know, who won. And, and even though there's hardcore evidence of, you know, voter fraud, worst ever. Of course, you and I have talked about this many times. There's been voter fraud for decades, but Mm -hmm. 2020 was the most blatant example of it. I mean, to the point that you even see literal changes being made on the screen in real time. (laughs) Uh, And yet none of that matters because there is no absolute truth. Just be quiet, sit down. Nothing to see here. We'll tell you what to think and what to believe, and we'll create truth with a little T before your very eyes. And so... People need to be aware that not everything that glitters is gold, not everything they hear is accurate, uh, and, and really test the spirits, as 4.1 tells us. 
So, JB, at the bottom of those steps that we referenced or I referenced at the very beginning of this podcast today of the descent of the modernists, once you take that first step down and believing that the Bible is not, or the Bible not infallible, or that's not inspired and of God, then you're in trouble. And I don't know, I guess there's 10 steps. I'm, I'm thinking there's about 10 steps. The bottom is right after post-truth comes agnosticism and atheism. So if people in, we all probably know people that are at that point that have just given up on, quote, organized religion or God. And um, what they mean by God is probably not the one true God of the Bible. They've heard lies. They've heard leftist talking points and deceptions about God. And that's what they've come to believe. So how do we reach them? Well, I think, uh, as I've said before, you know, it's tough to argue the truth of God's Word with people. And so rather than argue with them over whether God's Word is true or not, um, we just need to to use the Word of God. Someone said, don't argue with people over how sharp the sword is, just stick them with it. (laughs) So, you know, God's Word is what's quick and powerful. Paul said, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. He said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it, the gospel, is the power of God to salvation. So when someone begins to reject the Bible or reject truth, and I didn't put that lady at the conference, I just say, well, you know, uh, Jesus said, and it's it's historically documented that Jesus said, "I am the way, the truth, and life. No one comes to the Father but by me." So I don't have to necessarily pull out my Schofield Reference Bible, open it to John fourteen six, and and highlight the reference and and give them the John fourteen six you know reference number. I can just say the words because the Bible is uh, the, the Word of God is powerful and it's sharp. And so that's what Howard Hendricks meant when he said when, when we read the Bible, it's doing something to us. So I think we need to get back to proclaiming the truth of God's Word unashamedly and stop arguing over whether it's true or not, because in, in a, some way it sort of validates the argument when we argue back. Hmm. We just need to dismiss it, yes. you know. Yes. Just quote the, quote the words of Christ. He said, Amen. unless a man is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of heaven. Now, that's pretty exclusive, right? Yep. That means if you've not trusted in Jesus Christ and been born again, you will not go to heaven, period, mm. full stop. That's the words of Jesus. And so I think let the Spirit do the work. We can't argue people into the faith. Yep. All we can do is uh, proclaim the Word of God and let the Spirit of God take it from there. Thank you, JB. I want to quote Romans thirteen eleven. Do this knowing the time that it's already the hour for you to awaken from sleep. For salvation now is nearer to us than when we first believed. Romans 13, 11. J.B. Hickson, notbyworks.org. As always, great conversation, brother. Thank you so much. God bless you. Thanks, David. All right, tomorrow, Alex Newman, Liberty Sentinel, The New American, The Newman Report. Can't wait to catch up with one of my favorite journalists. And Wednesday, Billy Crone. Thursday, Pastor Jack Hibbs. Friday, new guest to the podcast, Claude Stoffer, and he's got a book out on the study of the book of Daniel. Thank you guys again. God bless you. And as always, keep speaking the truth about things that matter.